We have two readings this morning. Uh, the first is in the book of Isaiah, chapter 51, uh, starting at verse 15 to 23. So, uh, Isaiah 51, starting at verse 15. For I am the Lord your God, who churns up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord Almighty is his name. I have put my words in your mouth and covered you with the shadow of my hand. I, who set the heavens in place, who laid the foundations of the earth, who say to Zion, you are my people. Awake, awake, rise up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord, the cup of his wrath. You who have drained to its dregs the goblet that makes men stagger. Of all the sons she bore, there was none to guide her. Of all the sons she brought up, there was none to take her by the hand. These double calamities have come upon you. Who can comfort you? Ruin and destruction, famine and sword. Who can console you? Your sons have fainted. They lie at the head of every street, like antelope caught in a net. They are filled with the wrath of the Lord and the rebuke of your God. Therefore hear this, you afflicted one, made drunk but not with wine. This is what your sovereign Lord says, your God who defends his people. See, I have taken out of your hand the cup that made you stagger. From that cup, the goblet of my wrath, you will never drink again. I will put it into the hands of your tormentors, who said to you, Fall prostrate, that we may walk over you, and you made your, your back like the ground, like a street to be walked over. Our second reading is Matthew 26, verses 31 to 46. Then Jesus told them, This very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, This very night before the cock crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Could you men not keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter, Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it. May your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. This is God's word. 
Thank you for reading. Uh, let me have my welcome. My name is Matt Fuller, uh, if we've not met. Uh, and if you're a Christian, this is a very familiar passage, I would uh, imagine, hope. Uh, if you're not, it's perhaps slightly bewildering. So let's, let's pray that uh, we'll have God's help to understand. Our Father, you don't want us to be unclear. You want us to uh, know very clearly what it was that Jesus was doing all those years ago when he went to his death. So we pray we'd understand it rightly. Uh, but more than that, that your spirit would cause us to respond rightly, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. I read recently of a man, uh, Don Lansaw. Don Lansaw uh, was a man from Joplin, Missouri. And uh, a little while back, a 200-mile-an-hour tornado went through that town of Joplin, Missouri, just devastating it. Uh, lots of wooden houses there. 125 people were killed uh, in one night. Uh, so the house that Don uh, Lansaw was uh, living in with his young wife, Bethany, in their uh, early 20s, uh, was just ripped apart. You know, the, the tornado went right through, so everything just lifted up completely, uh, wood, uh, debris, glass flying everywhere. And as soon as Don realized what was happening, he threw his wife into the bath and got on top of her. And said, we're just staying here until it passes by, and the tornado passed by. And uh, they just about staggered out of the bath. And Bethany, his wife, realized... His back was repeatedly punctured, so were his lungs. And before any ambulance could get there, he died, protecting his wife. Now, rightly, of course, the papers pick up on this and say, that's a husband. That's a man dying, as he would do, to protect his wife. Of course, her testimony is very moving. She just keeps a wonderful husband. It's tragic to know that your husband is dead. Anyone would find that tragic. But to know that his death was so that I might live, it's tragic and yet, well, yet it's very wonderful too. And of course, that's true, isn't it? These chapters, we've said Matthew 26 to 28, we're in them. Uh, we've been just from now all the way until Easter, uh, Easter Sunday, we'll get to, to the end. Uh, but they are Matthew explaining why Jesus died. It wasn't just a tragic death. It achieved the most extraordinary good. And uh, this particular little snippet, uh, the Garden of Gethsemane, as I say, if you're a Bible reader, if you're a Christian, you'd have, you'd have heard this many times, I'm sure. But this particular piece, it really is explaining Jesus's perception of what he's about to do. His understanding of quite what it is that he's going to on the cross. That's primarily what it's here for. Okay, half of the little passage in Gethsemane is on prayer. Uh, Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray. Okay, it's the, the, the ninth time, I think, in uh, Matthew's Gospel, they'll have something to say on prayer. But even that teaching, <clears throat> excuse me, is largely by way of contrast with what Jesus is about to achieve. We said, if you've been here the last few weeks, Matthew loves his contrasts in these three chapters, keeps putting up one individual against another and saying, see, see what it looks like when you compare the two of them. And there's that going on here. Jesus' obedience and the disciples, well, their faithlessness in this particular occasion. And even before you get to the garden, you get these uh, wonderful little sort of interpretative comments that Matthew gives us or records for us. Uh, in verse 31, 
Two things Jesus tells his disciples before they go into the Garden of Gethsemane. Verse 31, Jesus told them, This very night you'll all fall away on account of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Jesus is quoting from the Old Testament, the prophet Zechariah. And Jesus says, look, I tell you what's about to happen. Two things are about to happen. One, God the Father is going to strike me. God the Son, the shepherd. That's what's going to take place on the cross. That's the first. I'm fully aware of what's happening here. And the second is you'll all run away. You'll all fall away. Those are the two things that are just about to happen. God the Father is about to strike me and as we'll see in the garden, that's terrible. Jesus is about to go to his death, but it's not death per se he fears. It's this type of death, being struck by God's judgment that is so terrible for him. That will happen. And, uh, well, the second thing is uh, you'll all run away. And it becomes a little bit childish. Peter replies, verse 33, oh, no, we won't. Oh, yes, you will. Oh, no, we won't, is sort of the gist of it in verses 33 to 35. You will, says Jesus, despite your bravado. So this account in Gethsemane, it's highlighting both Jesus' understanding of what he's about to do, his obedience to the Father, and that in contrast to the disciples who fail. But let's cut it this this way. Let me give you three angles to try and understand what's going on here. We'll look at the man of sorrows, the sleeping disciples, and the obedient saviour. The man of sorrows, the sleeping disciples, the obedient saviour. Let's take the return then. Uh, The man of sorrows, verse 36. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, you sit here while I go over there and we'll pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him. So he takes his best mates, as it were, the sort of inner three, the best, the finest of the disciples, the most committed, and uh, he's going off to pray. Now, verse 37 is a surprise. He took Peter and Zebedee, the two sons of Zebedee with him, uh, James and John, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Well, if you've read through Matthew's gospel so far, that is a surprise. Four times he's predicted his death. It has always seemed quite calm, quite stoical about it, even just at the beginning of this chapter, 26 verse 2. Just back a page, oh, as you know, says Jesus, the Passover is two days away, the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified, and on we go, and he just gets on with it. But here, he's sorrowful and troubled, and he's honest enough to say to Peter, James, John, verse 38, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Actually, all of the commentary says very similar language here to Psalm 42 and 43. You'd have to know your Bible to know them, but uh, there are psalms where, there's one long psalm really chopped in two, but the constant refrain there is, why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I'll yet praise him. It's a psalm of a man who's depressed. And everyone says, oh, Jesus picks up on those words. He's sorrowful and troubled. You could say he's depressed and confused. 
that would be okay to translate it that way, I think? No, I think this is profoundly helpful. Here in the Garden of Gethsemane, you see the man who was God. You see his humanity very clearly as he learns obedience to his father. And at this moment, when he confronts what he's about to do, he says, I'm overwhelmed by it. Don't need to be slightly careful. I'd want to express this reverently. But for you, if you find yourself at times overwhelmed, sorrowful, depressed, you know you're at your limits, you think, how do I keep going? I'm just overwhelmed here. I cannot see the way forward here. Well, I, I think I'd want to reverently say... Jesus knew what it was to be emotionally crushed. Just to be overwhelmed emotionally. I think, I can't, my soul is overwhelmed to the point of death. You see his humanity very, very clearly here. He is a man who knew a depth of sorrow, we'll see in a moment, beyond anything you you and I will ever know. An intensity beyond, I think, what you and I would ever know. Very striking that this one, the perfect one, that was part of his experience. His sorrow. Look actually at the prayer that he prays. Verse 39. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground. There's an intensity here and prayed. My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me yet... Not as I will, but as you will. That's only a summary, of course. Verse 40 would tell us he's been praying for an hour. So, uh, uh, you know, it's just that's the guts of it, the heart of it, as you, as you, as, uh, if you want. But it's an interesting prayer, isn't it? Father, I'm committed to your will, but really? Is there any other way of, of, of saving mankind? Any other way? Does it have to be like this? Again, I'll choose my words with some care, but there's a, how would you describe it? A, A desperate yet reverent dissent? Maybe that's too strong. Questioning here? Is, does it have to be like this? Oh, not your will, but mine be done. Anyway, I just think that's encouraging. To be honest in prayer if you're a Christian. There are times when we would pray, Lord, okay, I I trust you, and I know you're good, and I know you you desire the best for me, but really? Do we have to suffer this loss? Do I have to walk this path? Really? i just struggling to see the wisdom in this one, but not your will. So, excuse me, not my will. But yours be done. There's honesty there, isn't there? In his prayer. But it's the cup. The cup is the heart of it, which really explains uh, what's going on. You see, the guts of the prayer is, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. 
And of course, if you've got no Old Testament background, that's a slightly odd prayer. He desperately falls on his knees and says, I'm overwhelmed. Will you someone take this cup from me? Oh, there you go. I'll just put it in the dishwasher. You know, there's a sense in which, you know, it makes, you know, what's the big problem? You've got a cup, just throw it on the ground. So, you know, the, the litter police will come and pick it up and uh, all is well. But of course, as we had read in Isaiah 51, there is an enormous background to this cup. Eddie could recognize, if you read your Bible, this cup is not just a cup of wine or the FA cup or anything. It's the cup of God's wrath. It's a metaphor. He will drink God's judgment. So we had read uh, Isaiah uh, 51. We could equally have read something like uh, Jeremiah chapter 25. Let me read 20, Jeremiah 25 verse 15. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. Take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. When they drink it, they'll stagger and go mad because of the sword I'll send among you. Other places we could read of the cup of God's wrath. And that's the backdrop you've got to have in mind when Jesus says, please, not this. Really? Is there no other way but this? He's saying, I know what's going to happen when I die upon the cross. I will take your wrath upon me. 600 times the Old Testament speaks of God's wrath, so we understand the background to this is. Make sure we understand it rightly. Perhaps easier to say what it's not. God's wrath, it's not him losing his temper. God is not out of control. And it is not, in fact, the opposite of love. Now, God's wrath, God's anger, if you put it this way, it is his steady, unrelenting, unremitting, uncompromising antagonism to evil in all its forms and manifestations. It is a chosen response to evil. And yet at the same time, it is a controlled but an emotional response to evil. God hates evil. He hates it. He hates it in the world. He hates the evil in me and in you. But because we, we, we slightly have a problem with a concept of a God who is angry and will, will judge in, in wrath, because, well, when we get angry, it's uncontrolled. When we get angry, it's self-centered, self-absorbed. Normally, we're wronged in some way. It's not perfect. It's not defined rightly by love. Look, there's no perfect illustration, but uh, let me uh, uh, throw this at you once. It's, um, I have a terrific relationship with my dad. It's great. Uh, in his 80s now, not long to live, but I always had a good, very good relationship with my dad. Uh, and growing up, I think he was a great father. Uh, if I did something wrong, if I messed up at school, you know, a little day suspension or, or something, you know, a little colourful thing like that would happen, he'd sit me down and say, well, just, we'd talk it through. What happened? Where did you go wrong? What's going to be different? At occasions, I put a ball through a window or broke a piece of furniture. He didn't rage. He'd sigh and say, right, you and I are going to sit down and work out how we fix this. Because, you know, stuff didn't really make him angry. But there were just one or two occasions where he was clearly very angry. 
and slightly different generation, don't get obsessed with these things, but there, there were the odd occasion where the slipper was removed and applied uh, with some thoughtfulness to uh, my anatomy. But every occasion that took place, it was the same thing that set it off. I was rude to my mother, either in his presence or in more, more often than not when he was away. And that was the thing. My dad loved me. My dad was a terrific father. But if I was rude to my mother, if I rebelled against her, if there was dissent, dishonoring of her and therefore my parents, then as a part of who he was, a part of his concern for the family, he would demonstrate his anger. It was controlled, it was measured, it was always the, you know, you'd always count out the number. We always knew what was happening. But it was wrath demonstrated there. He loved me, but he wouldn't permit my rebellion. He wouldn't permit my uh, offensiveness to my parents to go unaddressed. He would not. On a cosmic scale, God loves his creation. He loves it. But he will not permit evil, rebellion, to go unpunished. And so he acts with both love and appropriate anger towards his creatures. What Jesus knows he's about to experience is God's wrath, his righteous anger against every human. He'll absorb God's judgment against this world. And that Jesus knows that's what he's about to face, and he's completely overwhelmed by that. Of course he is. Now, sometimes uh, parents of a little one, a young toddler, one, two-year-old, perhaps something like that, uh, the two-year-old will have a really nasty cold and cough. You know, it's just when they're small, it's just, you know, when they're racked with a cough, and the cough, and, you know, the whole sort of body seems to shudder. You think, oh, you poor little thing. And uh, a parent will say, oh, I wish I could take that cold for you. And yeah, I'm sure that's true. Parents would. You know, parents are big, and a cold is kind of annoying, but you blow your nose and get on with it. Where for a little one, it's sort of, you know, sort of, the whole body seems to sort of rub, jump up and down when, when they cough. You would take that. Of course you'd do that, and you could do that. It were sort of theoretically possible. But what you couldn't do would be to take every disease of every person throughout the world. You couldn't do that. Nor would you choose to absorb every cancer, every incident of Ebola as your organs are dissolved and you bleed to death internally. Every Alzheimer. You would, no one would choose to absorb in themselves every sickness, every malaria, every typhoid and untreated and just let them all ravage their body. Well, you, you physically couldn't and you wouldn't just be overwhelming with pain. Jesus is about to take upon himself God's judgment against the world into himself. And he's overwhelmed by that. Well, of course he is. He's about to absorb God's wrath against billions of people throughout history. You see, this is not just a heroic death. This is not just a martyr's death. He is the only one who ever died this death. Again, it's not death that fears, that terrifies him. It's this death. Taking the cup of God's wrath. 
Car crashes are a terrible thing, aren't they? If you sometimes you, you, you're in a traffic jam, you think, "Oh, traffic jam!" What's this? you know? Uh, and then you sort of you you realise, "Oh, there's an accident!" And ooh, ooh, that car, those two cars, ooh, golly, they're mangled. But then you drive on, and you think, "Oh, well, excellent! We're back up to 70 <coughs> or more." But uh, and uh, uh, Odie it's delighted. Oh, well, that was that. Uh, the other day we were driving back from somewhere and. Um, uh, we got to the accident, it was an accident, but the fire brigade was still there. And actually at very slow speed as we drove past, they were pulling out the body. It's different seeing it up close. That's not a conceptual, ooh, golly, accidents, they're nasty, and ooh, the car, ooh, golly, look how it all concertinas up. To see the body being removed, ooh, ooh, that's just a bit, actually, that sort of sticks in your head a bit and you don't want to see that. This is the point in Jesus' life where he's looking right up close at what he's about to do. And he's overwhelmed. And so, of course, this is recorded for us. So we never do the silly thing and say, Jesus dying on a cross was easy. It was not. He's overwhelmed. He's the man of sorrows. More briefly, let's look at these other two things. Uh, the contrast with the, of the man of sorrows is secondly with the sleeping disciples. Uh, and the main point here is that they fail, although there is some instruction. Verse 31, Jesus has already predicted they're going to fall away because association with him is costly. When I die, you'll all disown me. You'll all fall away because to be associated with me is costly, says Jesus. Peter, verse 33, never. Verse 35, never. I'll never disown you. Okay, well, let's have a little look then. You get to the garden. Jesus then takes the closest disciples, Peter, James, John, and gives them a very simple command, verse 38. Stay here. Keep watch with me. Pray. You keep watch by praying here. Jesus prays. Off he goes, verse 39. When he comes back, verse 40, then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Could you men, plural, not keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter, singular doesn't really make sense. You lot, you lot, you three, you couldn't stay awake for one hour, could you, Peter? Why? Because Peter's just said, I'll never let you down. Oh, the others might. I'll never fall away. I'll die with you rather than let you down. Peter, you couldn't even pray an hour. He fails. Now, there is some little instruction here in verse 41. There's something to learn in that. Watch and pray, verse 41. Watch and pray so that you'll not fall into temptation. That's why you watch and pray. Tempted to what? Or maybe just to fall asleep. But I think in context, the temptation to fall away. That's what he's spoken about that's going to happen. The temptation to disown Jesus. The temptation to, hey, are you a Christian? Well, not really. <laughs> that temptation... That's what Jesus is saying. Pray. That's how you'll have the strength to follow me, says Jesus, if you pray. But there's enormous compassion, verse 41. He doesn't berate them. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. There's compassion there, but also realism. Peter. 
Peter, you think you can follow me in your own strength. You'll fail. You need me. Call out to God. Pray. So it's not the major point in the passage. Why only stretch the imagination? But worth noting, look, the strength to follow Jesus, to not fall away, is still the same in the 21st century. Pray. It's a fruit of prayer. Now, I'm stretching this a little bit, but maybe for 21st century disciples, Jesus might say to us, to you and to me, if you're a Christian, could you men and women not pray for one hour? Could you not of a morning pray for half an hour? Could you not do that? That's how you keep going. It's not the main point. The main emphasis here is upon their failure. So verse 42, Jesus goes away a second time and prays. They come back. Verse 43, they're sleeping because their eyes were heavy. It seems as if this time Jesus didn't even bother to wake them. Just finds them asleep and, well, there we go, they're useless. Verse 43. And so he left them. We're not told he wakes them. He just leaves them be. Verse 44, off he goes a third time and prays. Then he returns and says, well, you are still sleeping. See, what a contrast. The man of sorrows praying trusting and the sleeping disciples we were meant to see that I'm about to be struck and everyone else will just fall away it's the man of sorrows the sleeping disciples last let's look at the obedient saviour which is the same as the man of sorrows he's of course it's the same Jesus but uh, the man of sorrows the sleeping disciples third the obedient saviour now, I say this tentatively, I don't think it's obvious in the other Gospels at all, but I think, I think Matthew wants us to see there's a progression in Jesus' prayers. So verse 39, are you persuaded by this? Verse 39, my father, if it's possible, can I take another way? If it's possible, is there any other option? If it's possible, but your will be done. Verse 42, if it's impossible, your will be done. There seems to be a progression here, a sort of slow movement of faith. I think that's right. But undoubtedly what's true is that Jesus' obedience is a, well, it's a struggle. It's a struggled for, it's a learned, it's a prayed for obedience that you see in him. And again, what a contrast. Jesus is about to face the most horrific death, bearing the Father's wrath, And says, not my will, but yours be done. The disciples can't even pray an hour. The best three disciples. I mean, this is Peter, James, and John. These are, woo-woo. These are, you know, the celebrity three. The best of them can't even obey. Three times Jesus goes to pray. Three times we're told the disciples are asleep. Because we're meant to read this and say, Oh, Lord, I praise you that, that my salvation is not down to me. Not what I will achieve, not my efforts, not my determination. The best of disciples bogged it. Lord, I praise you, it's not down to me, it's down to Jesus that I can be saved. He obeyed where you and I do not. And he took the wrath of God so you and I will not if we trust in him. 
But Jesus' work of taking the wrath of God was not easy. I was struck, I don't know, the, make of this what you will, but verse 46, or let me read from 45, 45, he returned to the disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Then verse 46, these are the last words he says to his disciples before he dies and he sees them after he's risen. And he says to them, rise, let us go. Now, I may be over-egging this, but I just think that's a wonderful word of grace for them. Right, I'm about to die. I'm facing the most horrific death that anyone in the whole of history will ever face. Can you pray with me for one hour? No. Thanks, lads. Let's go. He doesn't say to them, you losers are useless. It's just me, and I've just you know, had enough of you. He says to his hopeless disciples, I still want you with me. Isn't that wonderful? Because actually it's not about you. You are useless. You will never earn salvation. You'll never deserve a place in heaven. You are losers. But I want you with me. That's his final word to his disciples. Come on then. Let's all go together. You'll be with me in eternity, not because of your determination, Peter, not because of your strength, but because of me. Because of my obedience. Because I took the wrath of God in your place. So here is Jesus about to undo the work of Genesis chapter 3. At the beginning of the Bible, of course, in the Garden of Eden, Adam says, God, not your will but mine be done. And disaster follows. And us humans have said that ever since. Not your will, but mine. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus said, not my will, but yours. And salvation flows. And we say, hallelujah. What a saviour. Let me lead us in prayer. Father God, we we don't really know, we'll never quite know how overwhelmed Jesus was in that garden as he understood what it would mean to bear your wrath against sinful humanity. But we get some indication of it here, and we thank you for that. Above all, we we thank you for his obedience in contrast to the disciples' failure. And we are no better. So we thank you that where we fail, we say, my will be done. We praise you that Jesus said, not mine, but your will be done. He obeyed where we did not. And he took your wrath so we will not if we trusted him. And so we do want to say, hallelujah. What a saviour the Lord Jesus Christ is. Amen.